Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. And we ask now, Lord, that you would grab hold of our hearts and incline them to you. That the noise, the distractions, the cares and concerns that have assailed us this week, Lord, at this moment, you would allow them just to kind of fade away. And that our hearts and minds would be singularly focused on you. That as we look into your word, that you, Holy Spirit, would do that amazing work of opening our eyes, that we would behold your glory, your excellencies, your beauty. That as a family in Christ, united by faith, you would unite our heart to your heart, that we would fear your name. That you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. That you would lead us into all truth, especially in a world that seems to be governed by lies. That an entirety of our being would be anchored in Christ. We ask Holy Spirit now for you to do that work, which only you can do. And that is take the hearts of men and shape them into Christ-likeness. That you would take hearts that at this point have not come to faith and deadened hearts and give them life. That you would take the hearts of your saints and continue to mature them and grow them and enlarge in them. And I ask now that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, God. We pray all this in the majestic name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, we're continuing with the second part of our message from last week, where we were looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission. So if you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Matthew 28. In the year 2020, prior to the whole event of COVID, there was a study that came out that reported that less than 5% of churches in the United States could be labeled disciple-making churches. Less than 5%. Then in 2022, a different study came out, and it recorded that 39% of Christians are not involved in any sort of discipleship community. And only 28% of Christians are involved in some sort of discipleship community. That could be just a Bible study. It was just something other than Sunday mornings. And when they dug down in that study, they realized that the main reason that this is, the main reason that so few are actually engaged in discipleship is that most followers of Christ don't feel qualified to do so, or are they just not equipped? And yet the vast majority of pastors of churches, if asked, is your church a disciple-making church, are quick to give a hearty amen. So there's a disconnect. And this disconnect would explain why, why the church in America is kind of where it's at. The church in America has not been faithful to the mission that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us. And as a result, we have a discipleship famine in the land. Our people, the people of God, followers of Christ in America, simply don't know how to follow Christ and how to help others follow Christ. 
They may believe the right things about him, but the day-to-day is lacking. And so last week, we started looking at the mission that Christ gave us. We looked at the begin- we looked at verse 18, the beginning of verse 19. We saw that as we give ourselves to the mission of making disciples, we do so in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was verse 18. You saw in verse 19 that the mission was clear to make disciples. And we saw that the scope of this mission was to all the nations. This week, we look at the second half. We're going to look at the rest of verse 19 and verse 20, but I want to clarify a couple things. There is a difference between being a disciple, what discipleship is, and then what we call disciple making. We've defined a disciple as a redeemed image bearer of Christ, devoted to following him and becoming more like him no matter the cost. Now, discipleship is a little more nuanced because we use that word for so many things in the church. And so I'm simply going to say this, discipleship is the life long journey of growing in the knowledge of, love for, obedience to, and dependence on Christ. Discipleship is not a program that you graduate from. It's a life that you live. And so in one sense, we could say that all of life is discipleship because our sovereign God uses everything in life to grow us in these areas. He uses a traffic jam to grow you in godly patience. He uses children to really sanctify adults. He uses parents to sanctify children. He uses mean bosses to teach us submission. All of life, God is at work conforming us into the image of Christ so that we can love him, obey him, and trust in him all the more. But when we think of the rhythms of the church, the life of the church, and the mission of the church, that's where we come into disciple-making. And disciple-making is when we intentionally build a relationship with an individual or individuals to help them know how to love, obey, and depend on God. And that part, that knowing could be that evangelistic part. That could be coming into a saving relationship. And so disciple making is a very intentional thing that we do with others. And I wanted to make those distinctions clear because it's going to help us focus our understanding on what it is that Christ is commanding here in Matthew 28. And it also guards us from blurring the lines and thinking everything is disciple making. And so my prayer this morning is that all of us will know and be committed to the truth that disciples of Christ make disciples of Christ. So let's look at our passage now this morning. Let's look at Matthew 28. I'm going to read verse 19, but our focus will be the second half. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Our first point this morning is the means of discipleship. The means. 
If you're tracking with the outline last week, it was the authority, the mission, the scope, and now the means. And the first thing we read here is baptizing. Now, some have taken this verse to make the point that baptism saves you. So I want to be very clear. Being baptized does not save you. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The command here to be baptized is something that you do after trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, not something you do to receive the forgiveness for your sins. Baptism, in baptism, what you're doing, it's an outward act reflecting an inward reality. Now, for those who, during this time that Jesus is, is speaking and through the life of the early church, discipleship wasn't this flippant thing that you did or just did or didn't do. Discipleship was a very important thing. It was a big deal. Because to be baptized was essentially to come out of the closet and say, I'm a follower of Christ. It was to go public with your faith. It was to say, I am following Christ and Christ alone. I am breaking away from Judaism. I am breaking away from Roman pagan practices. And I'm aligning myself, I'm identifying myself with Christ and Christ alone, who he is and what his, he's done. It wasn't done carelessly because to be baptized then as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ was costly. If you were Jewish, it could mean a complete alienation from your people. Judaism being so communal, it was to essentially be abandoned. I mean, they crucified Christ and you're identifying yourself with him. If you were Roman or part of the Roman Empire and you were baptized as a follower of Christ, you were essentially saying that all of these gods that we worship are false gods, that there is only one true God. And back in the Roman Empire, that's what they would have called atheism. They would have had no issue with you following Christ as long as you followed Christ plus all of these. But that singular devotion here was costly. Now, baptism did come pretty quickly after someone professed faith in Christ. There wasn't this notion that I could put my faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized seven years later. It was an identification. If you have truly been born again, if you have truly been regenerated, then we must identify you publicly and quickly. Baptism was and still is the first step of obedience after salvation. Baptism signifies extremely important things. If we were to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we would see that baptism signifies repentance. Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, repent 
And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized is to say, I have repented of my sin. I've agreed with the verdict of God, and I'm turning away from sin to Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see that baptism signifies that you truly believe in Christ for salvation. Acts 2.41 reads, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. To receive the word is to believe it. Romans chapter 6 is an amazing chapter about the realities of baptism. And what we see in Romans chapter 6 specifically verses three and four, is that baptized signifies that we have died to sin, that we have been crucified and buried with Christ, and that we have been raised into newness of life, into eternal life. Listen to Romans chapter six, verses three and four. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism signifies, represents amazing eternal realities. Now, I understand that today we have many brothers and sisters in our churches who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and have not been baptized. There's a variety of reasons across the board. It could be, man, I get really nervous coming in front of a lot of people and standing up here and my social anxiety kicks in. I understand. It could be that maybe you've been at churches that said, well, you were baptized as an infant and so you're good now. But here's what I would say to all of you. This idea of prolonging baptism or baptism being optional was an unthinkable reality to the early church. It would have been unthinkable to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have not been baptized, then reach out, talk to the leadership of the church, and let's fix that. We can work through how, uh, what some of those obstacles are and how to get around them. But take that step of obedience and be baptized. I promise you, it is one of those things you look back at at moments and God will use it as a means of grace to strengthen you. I was baptized before I really knew what it meant to be baptized when I came to faith in my early 20s. And then I went through some seasons of just rebelliousness. And I began to question in my salvation. But then I remembered, I I identified with Christ and I need to walk in that identification that I made publicly. And so God uses baptism as a means of grace. You're robbing yourself of grace that God gives to not be baptized. So I would encourage you to be baptized. Now, as it relates to the Great Commission, this first uh, this first part of the means baptizing also presupposes something. If you're baptizing people, it means you've evangelized people, and it means the people that you've evangelized have responded by faith in the gospel of Christ. And so what we see here in the Great Commission is that evangelism is part of making disciples. 
because you can't disciple people who have not been born again. And so the, the apostles of the early church would go out and they would preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would preach that God, by his grace and for his glory, saves sinners through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So evangelism is a part of discipleship. Evangelism isn't discipleship in its totality, but it is a part of discipleship. Evangelism is sharing the good news, proclaiming it, preaching it. I want to say when regards to this, I know when we talk about evangelism, some individuals begin to get that knot in their chest. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't have the boldness to hand out tracts. It's true that there is the gift of being an evangelist. We see that in Ephesians. But every follower of Christ is called to evangelize. So let me just give it what I, what I mean by this. Evangelism, the definition I would provide, is simply sharing the good news that by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, you can be forgiven of your sin and have eternal life. It's simply share, just share what God has done to draw you to himself through his son. We don't need to complicate it. We don't need to formulatize it. We do, I'm not saying if, if some kind of four spiritual laws, if that helps you, great. But simply saying, this is who I was. This is what Christ promises because of what he's done. I've trusted in that I've been forgiven. It's so simple. A child can do it. It's so profound that we'll spend all eternity marveling at it. Problem is we're not marveling at what he's done in our lives now. That's at the heart of why we don't evangelize. Because some we've grown dull to the fact that we do not deserve the love of God. We do not deserve his forgiveness. We do not deserve his moment by moment grace in our lives. We've grown dull to that almost arrogantly expecting it. And so we don't share it with others. But we know how it is. We see somebody come to faith early on, that new believer that we dub as unfire for the Lord. And they're telling about Jesus to everybody and anybody because they are overwhelmed by that forgiving grace. So if we're going to be disciples that make disciples, then we need to regain our wonder of God's salvation in our lives. We need to return to the doctrine of sin and recognize I don't deserve this. We need to return to the grace in Christ and say, I don't deserve that. And then we need to return to the doctrine of God and say, but he is gracious and merciful and loving. And when we are overwhelmed by that, we will naturally go and evangelize. And as we evangelize, God promises that his, his sheep will respond to his voice and they will be born again and they will be baptized into the local church. Notice here, this, this baptism is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If somebody ever asks you where the Trinity is in the Bible, you can see it right here. Each member of the Trinity is listed here. And notice in the name, singular, 
of, and then he lists each member of the Trinity. We serve a Trinitarian God. This is very distinctive. Allah is not God. We don't have a generic God. We have a God that is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mysterious and yet true. A beautiful mystery. Not a mystery that is meant to be put under a microscope necessarily, but meant to be worshipped for. It's a beautiful mystery. And notice, as we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what that means is we belong to him. We belong to him. When we are baptized in the name of our triune God, we're saying, I belong to him and him alone. In the name of the Father, I've been adopted. In the name of the Son, my older brother, my Savior. In the name of the Spirit, the one who dwells within me, sanctifies me, and empowers me to do what God has called me to do. So the first means of discipleship is baptism, which includes the evangelistic portion of it. But then he goes on in verse 20, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. Let me very, we just have to be honest here. There is no true discipleship apart from the teaching of the word of God. It can be rightly said that disciples are only as deep as their doctrine. Discipleship requires an open Bible. Discipleship is not sitting around in some emotional self-help group. Discipleship is digging deeply into what God has said so that we can understand who he is and then living accordingly. Jesus says, teaching them to keep all, all that I've commanded you. Jesus didn't say teaching them the New Testament. He didn't say just teach them the red letters. Just teach them the parts that are not offensive. Just teach them the parts that they're going to like. He said teaching them all that I have commanded you. You see, this is an obedience issue. We do not have the authority to teach what we want to teach. We have the responsibility to submit to the Lordship of Christ and teach them all that he's commanded. Disciples are instructed to teach others from Genesis to Revelation. We are to root our brothers and sisters deeply in the full counsel of God. We are to root them deeply in the Old Testament, which is like three-fourths of our Bible. We are to root them deeply in the New Testament. We are to show them how the Old Testament connects to the the New Testament and vice versa, how Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecies. Yes, a lot of this happens through the ministry of the word, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and in Bible studies. But it also happens as individual brothers and sisters open the word of God and come alongside other individual brothers and sisters. 
And there's a responsibility there that if you're going to be a disciple maker, you can't choose to be biblically illiterate. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. If I worked at a job for five years and then a new person, there's a new hire and my boss says, hey, Alex, I need you to take Jim here who just got hired and I need you to teach him the ropes. I've been there five years. Imagine me saying, you know, <laughs> I don't really think I have anything. I don't know if I can teach him that. I'm going to be dusting off my resume. Because after five years, I should know at least the fundamentals of my job. And yet we have so many brothers and sisters in Christ who've been walking with the Lord years upon years. And as we said in the beginning of that study, they don't know how to help a new believer, a, a, a less mature believer, grow up into the fullness of Christ. Part of that is the is, bears the responsibility of the churches they've been a part of. Perhaps they've been at a church that said, hey, let the leaders do all the heavy lifting. But it's also, there's a responsibility. Each believer has a responsibility before the Lord to be educated, grounded in God's word. So even if you were at a part of a church that didn't root you in the word of God, God has put his word in your lap. There is a, an abundance of riches out there and resources that there is no excuse for a, a, a follower of Jesus in America today to be biblically illiterate. If a believer in Christ is biblically illiterate and they've been professing Christ for any period of time, one of the core issues then is laziness. So we must be disciples committed to growing as disciples so that we can make disciples. Now, there's this notion out there that just seems to be getting bigger and bigger and gaining more traction that, hey, I'm going to invite so-and-so to, to come over to the house and we're going to fire up the Traeger grill. We're going to smoke some meat. We're going to watch the game. That's discipleship. You know what? We're going to get together for coffee and we're going to talk about how crazy it is to raise children, but then we'll pray afterwards. That's discipleship. We're going to just have dinners together all the time with other families in the church. That's discipleship. Those are, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. That may be a, a, an aspect of fellowship. It's things we should be doing, but that's not discipleship. Discipleship is teaching another believer on how to follow Christ. I may have made them a disciple of how to use a trigger grill, but that's not following Jesus. I don't think Jesus is concerned with how we smoke meats or drink coffee or do all these other things in eternity. There's far more pressing things at stake. But we do those things because it's easier. We can feel good about ourselves. But the pressing need of the hour for everybody is a deeper understanding of the fullness of God. So if you only have time to do one or the other, either we're going to have dinner with this couple, or we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to study the word of God and pray, then pick the scriptures. Pick the scriptures. Because then the other day, a full stomach is not going to help you fight sin. But a full heart with the word of God will. Now, he says, teaching them to keep. Other translations say, observe. 
We're going to get into that in a moment, but that means we're not simply to fill heads with information. Discipleship isn't a doctrinal download. We are teaching people how to live it out, how to live as Christ lived. The word keep, the word observe, it means to obey. But again, nothing can be obeyed that's not known. So I think every sermon I reference 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. They're important. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me just say this. Anybody who knows me knows I love books. I've read a fair share. But the newest Christian book isn't what your brother or sister needs most. Those books are helpful in supplements. It's like a multivitamin. But you don't survive on multivitamins. You survive on full plates of real meals. And so we give them the word of God because it's only the word of God that is without error. It's only the word of God that can fully, truly teach, reprove, correct, train for every part of life. Second Peter chapter one tells us that God has given us all we need. Second Peter one, three, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God's given all we need. You don't have to have Bible plus. I wonder, I want you to consider, do you believe that giving a simple soul, simply a Bible, is enough for them to grow up to be a mature saint of Christ? Or do you believe I have to give them this plus a fancy reading list? I think we've lost at a practical level confidence in the word of God, which is why we're so resource dependent. I love resources. I use them as I prepare sermons all week. But we cannot get to the place where if we don't have resources, we feel like we can't hear from God. If we get to the place that if we don't think we can hear from God without resources, you're probably hearing from your favorite author more than from the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me was when my mother gave me a hard time for depending on a study Bible all the time. Just wrestle with the text. Just use cross-references. But I felt so dumb. I'm like, I can't do it. But I also, did, I also didn't like being called out. I'm like, all right. You know what I realized? Is that sometimes with those study notes at the bottom, they're good, they're helpful, but it's so easy to become dependent. And so easy to get caught up in the academic aspects of it and, for, and forget, grow, your ears are almost plugged to hearing the, how the Holy Spirit is taking those passages and convicting in specific areas of your life. 
So church, I ask you, if you're going to be, if we're going to be teaching people, men and women of God, to keep all that God has commanded, are you being taught by God through his word to do so? Now that keeping means also modeling. I don't know if we thought much about this, but if we are to teach them to keep, right, which means to observe, to obey. Let me just say this. You can tell that a tree is healthy by the fruit it bears. And it's the same for disciples. Faithful disciples will live lives that reflect Christ. Faithful disciples will have lives of spiritual fruit. Because if biblical knowledge, right, if biblical knowledge was enough to be a faithful, mature disciple of Christ, then Satan is the chief disciple. Because he has great knowledge of God. He's had conversations with him. So knowledge alone is not enough. Information is not enough. It has to be information that takes root in our hearts and is lived out faithfully. Making disciples, we evangelize, we teach, but we also have to show people what it looks like lived out. There has to be a modeling. And this is the part that's so often neglected. We get our workbooks and we work through our series of workbooks and they have knowledge and they spout off memory verses. And I'm not saying anything's are bad, but we haven't really dealt with anything. We haven't confronted sin. It hasn't been repented of. It hasn't been weeded out. It hasn't been accountability. They don't know how to come alongside other believers and do that. We've created theologians more than we've created disciples, if we're not modeling and teaching them what it looks like lived out. We need to teach people what to believe, but also how to obey. Now, here's a really important principle. When it comes to making disciples, we must guard ourselves from educating people beyond their obedience. Let me repeat that. We must guard ourselves from educating people beyond their obedience. Here's what I mean. Relatively new believer. You start educating them in the, in the doctrines. Begin teaching them how to study their Bible. But they're not yet even able to really live out what they're learning. But before we are holding them accountable, we just start throwing more doctrine and more doctrine and more doctrine. They've been educated beyond their obedience. And so when I first came to faith, God did an amazing thing. I hated books. I hated reading. And I really believe that Romans 12, 1 and 2, he gave me a new mind. He renewed my mind. So in those first, I'd say, five years, I probably devoured more theology in the first five years of my faith than most believers, men I've encountered in the church, do in their entire lives. I think I was reading thousands of pages of theology a year. I could sit there by the end of two years debating infralapsarian versus superlapsarian. And then somebody would ask me, well, what's God teaching you about in your life right now? I just start spotting off. Well, no, what's he teaching you about you and following him? And I had no idea what to say. Quickly dodge the question. I was walking around kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the cartoon movie Megamind. This cartoon character has got this enormously swollen head. That's what I felt like. 
I had all this stuff up here, but I still had an infant little body. I couldn't, I was still learning how to walk. But because, especially the people I was surrounded with were just encouraging this academic aspect of the faith, this intellectualism, for five years especially, I was so deceiving myself because I thought I was super mature. You've never read Berghoff. Don't talk to me. That was my smugness. But God, in his grace, decided to bring out the disciplining rod of reproof. He brought many trials into my life. And he showed me your bookshelf isn't going to sanctify you. I am through the word. And he brought people into my life that held me accountable, that confronted, that called out my sin. Me and my wife got remarried. And I think one of the gifts God gives you in marriage is a mirror to see your own sin in your spouse. You realize how selfish you are. And I realized, man, I, my intellectualism has become actually the biggest barrier to my sanctification. Now, I'm not saying don't study, but I'm saying is when you make disciples, focus just as much on teaching them what that looks like lived out, modeled. Don't allow men and women to have a false sense of security because they're really smart. Smart and sanctification are not the same thing. We teach doctrine, but it has to be also modeled. Which means we have to open up our lives. Maybe that's another reason we don't like to make disciples. Because then that means we have to open up our hearts and our lives to people. And in so doing, we realize we don't have it together as much as we thought we did. Listen to how the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 talks. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul says, In this way, we have fond affection for you. We were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Jesus didn't say, hey, guys, meet me three times a week at the synagogue for 90 minutes of discipleship. He invited 12 men to walk with him for three years to see him in all aspects of life, to see what it looks like to live in submission and obedience to God the Father. And so when we make disciples, let us instruct with the word, but let that also be modeled by how we live. And when we get it wrong and we sin, the people we disciple need to see us confessing sin, repenting of sin. Because we're not making disciples of ourselves, we're making disciples of Christ. And so they need to see our pursuit of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul makes that startling claim, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's a bold claim until you realize, wait a minute, he's not asking me to live like him. He's asking me to follow him the way he follows the one we both have bowed the knee to as Lord. So with that, here's a challenging question I want you to consider. Would you want other people to have the relationship with Jesus that you do? Would you want other people to have the relationship with Jesus that you have? Would you want to export your faith into the life of others? That's a hard word. But it's one we have to take seriously. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to live in such a manner that people 
would see genuineness of faith in us. A disciple that's simply educated in the word but isn't obeying the word is a counterfeit disciple. You and I are called to live intentionally and obediently. We're to give ourselves to making disciples. Let me just say this. There's two ditches we can fall into here as we talk about making disciples. The first ditch is that we rush the process. This is very common in mainstream evangelicalism. Rushing the process. We somehow think things like, hey, why don't you sign up 12 weeks to be a disciple? 12 weeks on how to learn to be a disciple of Christ. Somehow they think that in 12 weeks, they can accomplish what it's, what Jesus chose to spend three years doing. We have streamlined Jesus's process because we're better at it than his. Is effectively what's being said there. Jesus spent 90% of his time over three years pouring into 12 men. So 12 weeks is not going to cut it. We don't have microwave Christianity. You can nuke them to maturity. It takes time to raise up mature men and women of God. We can't, there's no way to speed the process up and we shouldn't want to. Making disciples isn't about putting notches on your belt. It's about fidelity to Christ. We're in such a rush to send people out on mission that we fail to properly determine whether or not they're grounded enough to be effective. I was in the army. And when I joined the military, as every recruit joins the military, you go to boot camp. And then after boot camp, you go to your training school. Why? Because if by signing on a paper, they send me right out to the war, all that's going to do is get a body, come home in a body bag and give my mom a folded flag. Because to be at least an average troop, I have to have certain training and grounding. It's the same thing for followers of Christ. Do you realize, actually, in some discipleship circles, we say we can make a mature follower of Christ faster than the military can make an infantryman? 12 weeks. Spend more time learning how to properly work a rifle as an infantryman. We need to slow down and we need to follow the model of Christ. We need to not rush the process. But the second ditch is prolonging the process. So we also need to guard ourselves against creating this unbiblical expectation of where someone needs to be before they can be a disciple maker. Because that can result in people feeling, well, this is only for the spiritually elite. That person being discipled has been in this, in this, in this area for so long that they begin to think, well, I can never do it. But being a disciple maker is a responsibility of every believer. Being a disciple maker doesn't mean you have to have the gift of teaching. That's a different thing. Not every disciple, not every disciple of Christ is called to be a teacher in the local church, but they are called to come alongside other believers and teach them how to follow Jesus. Those are different things. So for, as we make disciples, we have to recognize our, our expectations of them beyond what God has expected of them to be effective as disciple makers. That doesn't mean they stop being trained and grow. Our entire life is ongoing training, ongoing teaching, equipping, all of that. But we have to make sure that we don't hold on too long 
because then they can begin to think, I just can't do it. There has to be wisdom and discernment in there. I'm can't. I'm not going to draw fixed lines on what that looks like. Discipling this individual may take longer than discipling this individual. Sure, we can create general paradigms of what it should look like. We can say it's never going to be less than this, but it can be more. Because biblical discipleship seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ. Let's not send men and women out there too soon. We don't want spiritual body bags lining our churches. I want to say this, making disciples is hard work. Converts are easy. Disciples are hard work. It's a giving over of our lives for these people. We saw that when Paul says we share our very lives with you. We need to recognize that as we give ourselves to making disciples, you and I have no power within ourselves to make disciples. Therefore, one of the non-negotiable must-haves for every disciple maker is a vibrant life of prayer. We need to be praying for God to change the hearts of men and women. We do not have the ability to do that because it is God and God alone who changes hearts. Listen to Ezekiel 36 verses 25 and 27 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Let me say this. Ultimately, it's God who makes disciples. We've been entrusted to be his instruments by which he works, but we are making disciples in that sense. It is God ultimately who makes disciples. It is God ultimately who changes hearts. We pray, we submit, we obey, and we're used by him, but he gets the glory. I was on my Facebook recently and I saw this individual marketing himself as a discipleship guru saying, I've made over 250,000 disciples. I don't even think I know 250,000 people. Like, I don't know who you are, man. Like, fancied himself the Apostle Paul reincarnated. No, you didn't make 250,000 disciples. We also have to realize disciple-making isn't a hobby. It's a lifestyle. If you don't put in the work, you're not going to see the fruit. We recently finished a study on the book of Colossians. And I think in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, we see that it's not a hobby for Paul. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. Do you break a spiritual sweat to make disciples? And it bears repeating, it's it's, it's a necessary work. It's absolutely necessary to make disciples. 
It's not optional. It's not something that sounds good. It is absolutely needed. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their desires. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That is the culture we live in. There is a perversion of the God, of God's word. And there is also an erasing trying to happen of God's word. We need to get out there. We need to preach. We need to evangelize. We need to root people in the word of God. And then we need to send them out to go get some more. It is a beautiful, global, cosmic rescue mission. Last, I'll be brief here. He says at the end of the verse, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I love that word, behold. Translations are trying to do away with it, but it's a beautiful word. When you read the word behold, an alarm should start going off in your brain that you really need to listen up. This is important. This mission that Jesus has just put before his disciples is absolutely impossible. You should read what Jesus said and say, I I can't do it. So he says, listen up, behold. Me, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, ruling, reigning, King of the cosmos, I'm with you always. It's not an easy mission. But because I'm with you, it's a possible mission. It's not a mission that'll happen quickly, but it's a mission that will happen victoriously. It's a mission that may not be completed in your lifetime, but it will be completed in the right time. And this promise that Jesus is with us is an anchor for us because here's the reality. You'll start discipling somebody and next thing you know, they'll walk away from the relationship. You'll start discipling somebody and have to confront their sin and you'll lose the friendship. You'll start discipling somebody and you see their life is messy and it interrupts your Friday family night. You'll start discipling somebody and see no change whatsoever. Is this really working? It's at those moments that you have to remember Christ has commanded this and he said, he's with me. He's not with me sometimes. He's with me all the time. Every minute of every day, Jesus is with me, strengthening, caring for me. And he's with us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. You see that in John 14, 26. The one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father indwells us by his Spirit. So when I was thinking about how to summarize this, here's a beautiful way I think to say it. The people of God are indwelt by the Spirit of God who will work in and through them by the Word of God so that they can carry out the mission of God. From beginning to end, it is a work of God. Jesus didn't give us a mission and leave us to ourselves to figure it out as best we can with the information given. He says, I'm with you always. This is how he ends the gospel of Matthew. He tells us he's with us always. But at the beginning of Matthew, in the beginning of Matthew, we're given a very beautiful statement here. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew began his gospel by saying, God is with us. And Matthew ends his gospel by Jesus saying, I'm with you. It is a reminder always that Jesus is more committed to making disciples than we ever will be. And he resides with us so that we can do it. He's not a Jewish carpenter alone. He's the God man. And the fact that he says he's with us always evidences that he truly is God. That means we can trust him always. And when he gets hard, we can remind ourselves we don't give up because he hasn't given up. Let me end by saying, what would it look like for our church to have a DNA of discipleship? It would look like each and every one of you viewing yourself as a disciple maker. It would mean you see yourself when somebody starts asking questions about the faith or needs to be grounded in faith, you don't hand them off. Church, we don't need retreats to figure out how to reach people and disciple them. You don't need consulting groups to assess our churches and develop custom-made programs for discipleship, which is a trend in so many churches. You don't need new mission statements and fancy websites to make disciples. All we need to do is simply submit ourselves, humble ourselves before God, pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us, and faithfully teach and obey God's word. And when we do that, he will send us out on this mission in his authority. He will provide us with the means to complete it. And he'll be with us every step of the way. We don't need anything else. The real question we have to answer is, do we believe in the mission? Are we willing to give our lives to see men and women become disciples of Christ who make disciples of Christ? This church started here in McHenry, our church. It exists for two reasons alone. For God to be rightly worshipped and for disciples to be made to enter into that worship. It's not a program. It's not a lifestyle. It's who we are. So with that, I would just ask you, put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. And let's give ourselves to the work God has called us to. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior. And Lord, we're so humbled that you would entrust this vitally important mission to us. That you would use us, Lord, in growing the kingdom. Father, we deeply desire to be found faithful. And so, Lord, I don't know where anyone's at. Maybe there's men and women here, children here today that have realized I can't make disciples because I've never become a disciple. I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts now, that they would see that they are sinners in need of your forgiveness, and that they would trust in your perfect life, 
substitutionary death and resurrection Jesus, and that they would become disciples this very moment. Perhaps there are some of us here who have fallen into a spiritual slumber. Lord, I pray that you would shake us awake, put a fire in our bones, and if we've never been discipled, that we would get discipled so that we can be part of this. Perhaps there's some of us who have discipled people, but we're just kind of on cruise control, regurgitating the same information. Lord, may we not ever hit a spiritual cruise control. May we realize it's not the regurgitation of information. It is the imparting of our very lives into the lives of others. Lord, you know where everyone is at at different places. And so we just, we trust you, Lord, to do what must be done to raise up mature men and women of Christ that seek to make more disciples of Christ. Lord, you've told us that we go in your authority and we go with your presence, which means ultimately, Lord, this is a work that you are doing. So we know it will not fail. Strengthen our church now by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be found faithful. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.